Hebrews 20.20, and whatever I said last time and the time before, the sequence has reached increment 109 today, increment 109, and this will be the Greek title, Halagos Tutheu, part 7, the Word of God, part 7. And so in this and perhaps the next message, we'll still be taking a, a look at Hebrews 4.12 and 13, the main subject being the Word of God. <clears throat> so we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray today that you'll open the eyes of our hearts to be able to see wonderful things out of your Word, the sum total of which is our Lord Jesus Christ. May we become aware through the message today that not only do we see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, but Jesus sees us throughout our hearts and is able to discern our intents and thoughts. And we pray that you'll show us what that means and how significant that is to our lives at the present time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've developed a metaphor that pervades throughout Hebrews. The metaphor already begins with the teaching pastor's description of the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12, that it is sharper than any two-edged blade. And I use the word blade because it doesn't just pertain to sword, but any kind of blade. The metaphor that I've developed is that I've added to the metaphor that the blade of the Word of God has a blood groove along its length. As so many knives, blades, and swords do, they have in the center of it, usually at the, almost the whole length of the blade, what they call a blood groove. And so I'm doing this because if we consider the Word of God to be like a blade, and if the Word of God has a blood groove, that blade has a blood groove, then throughout the Word there is the message of the blood, the blood of the sacrificial lamb. What's always pertinent and what's always relevant in the Word of God is the blood of Christ. We're going to see both of these today. When you read 1 John 5, 7 and 8, really 5, 5 through 8, you see that the writer says that there is a complicity or an agreement between the spirit and the water and the blood. All of this came together when Jesus was ready to expire on the cross. For he said, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. There's the spirit. And out of his side came both blood and water, giving a testimony to be believed in John 19:34 and 35. And so the water and the spirit and the blood agree. And that's what I mean when I say the blood groove runs along the full length of the blade of the word. That's a metaphor. We're going to see how this comes together. Whenever the Lord, therefore, as the word of God, looks upon the heart and looks at our intents and our thoughts, he sees through the blood. And so his judgment of us is never condemning. In fact, his judgment of us is always justifying. God is described in the scripture as God who justifies in Romans 8.33. God who justifies. Jesus Christ's obedience 
all the way through the death of the cross resulted in the justification and life of all, all, all of humanity. And so the blood of Christ, which justifies, Romans 5, 9, and the God who justifies, in Romans 8, 33, agree. And in heaven, one witness of the New Testament, it's not in all the translations, but one witness of New Testament translation says that in heaven, the Father, the Spirit, and the Word agree. So again, this is a metaphor that doesn't just apply here, although it applies here specifically in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. What I want to do today, beginning the message, is to compare Hebrews 4.12 and 13 with Hebrews 9.14. In that, you'll see something of the word and the blood. The word and the blood. The blood, of course, speaking of so much, speaking of the redemption that was wrought in Jesus Christ, which he wrought and won by his own blood, Romans 3.24, Hebrews 9.12, and the word of God, of course, which is the subject here. The saints in Revelation, from the perspective of heaven, were said to have overcome the accuser of the brotherhood, or the band of brothers, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There's another one that comes to mind, Revelation 12, 9 to 12. The word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb. The blood groove goes the length of the word of their testimony. On top of that, these saints who overcame did not love their own lives in this world more than they loved God. And so by those three elements... They overcame the accuser of the brethren. That's very poignant to us now in our present time in history because the accuser of the brethren has never been busier than he is right now as our whole culture has come into a kind of what is called a cancel culture, an accusation culture, a slanderous culture, a litigious culture. All those things are going on because of the invisible enemy, the God of this age, the prince of the power of airborne spirits who works in the sons and daughters of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2 2, and 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, along with Revelation 12.9-12. Now there's another passage, I won't call it scripture, but I will call it a teaching from scripture from Cairo Geniza Targum. It's a Targum that I believe was discovered in Cairo. Cairo Geniza Targum. Now the Targums are Aramaic renditions of the scripture. They are translations of the, the Jewish scriptures and they come with a long exposition or explanation within them. And we studied the Targums at great length in studying the Gospel of John. That's where the word logos in John for the word comes from. It comes from the Targums where God says, I in my word am he. I, I in my word am God, such as in Targum of Deuteronomy 32:39. I'm not going to give this the same honor that I would give to the canonical scriptures, but nevertheless, 
in Cairo, Geniza Targum. The Exodus 12.13 translation says, My word will see the blood. Now, of course, we know Yahweh, God, when he sees the blood on the doorposts in the Passover, the night of the Passover, he passes over those houses and does not bring death to the firstborn because he sees the blood. Well, interestingly, Cairo Geniza Targum of Exodus 12:13 says, My word will see the blood. Now, once again, this adds to our metaphor as some power to our metaphor that the blood groove goes the length of the blade of the word. Now, the word of God critically assesses the deliberations and determinations of our hearts. I'm convinced that many who call themselves Christians don't want to be under the rigorous teaching of the word of God precisely because of that. It assesses the deliberations of the heart, the intent of the heart. They'd rather hear a fluffy message or what Isaiah calls smooth things, a nice little pep talk or a positive thinking message, rather than getting down to the serious and consistent teaching of the Word of God. Again, the Word of God critically assesses. In fact, that very word that's used there in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 is kritikos or critic. And it's related to a judgment or a critical assessment or what we would call an evaluation. The Greek word actually is, and we've looked at this before, K-R-I-T-I-K-O-S, kritikos. So it's a critical assessor of thoughts and intents, deliberations and determinations. The judgments that we make in life are judged by the Word of God. That's why... The real teaching of the Word of God isn't popular, and you're probably not going to fill a stadium with people who are interested in hearing it. Not today. That may change as situations in our country become far worse. What we've had so far as so-called adversity in our country is what Jeremiah would call running with the foot soldiers. The cavalry hasn't yet come to our nation. The kind of trials that require a total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. They haven't come to us yet. The Word of God critically assesses the deliberations and determinations of our hearts and even traces the habitual pathways that we follow in our thinking. And the Word of God sees our hearts, however, and this is the good news, the Word sees our hearts through the blood of Christ. And so the gaze of God and the gaze of Jesus into our interior being is one of love. His love covers a multitude of sins, just like the blood on the mercy seat covers the broken tablets of the law. For all sin is lawlessness, the blood on the mercy seat covering the ark in which the broken tablets of the law are found is like the blood that covers our sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, says 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, quoting a proverb. God's love, then, is what assesses and judges our thoughts and our intentions of our heart. 
but he does so with a view to a renewal of our minds. He wants to check the thoughts that are self-destructive, thoughts that are like guilt or fear. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. So it's incumbent on us, therefore, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the living God and the living word. In Hebrews 4.12 and Romans 12.1. As a living sacrifice. That means we present ourselves to the blade of the word, but it doesn't mean God's going to cut our throat like he does with the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. We are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that's our reasonable service to offer our bodies in that way. The result of that is we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so again, I've asked you to turn to Hebrews 4.12, and so we will then, and then go to Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 12 reads this way, and we've developed this translation from the original Greek text. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active, meaning it's operational. It's sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin. Joints and marrow is more of a neurological interpretation of the nerve fibers and the myelin. And it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart. There is no created being, says verse 13, no creature or no created being that is hidden from his sight. Please notice that phrase, hidden from his sight. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. That's interesting too because the, this passage 4, 12, and 13 begins with the word lagan, which means word. And it ends with the word lagan or comes to a close using this word lagan. Here it means word of God. There it means account. All of us will give an account, our own words to God, at what is known as the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Also spoken of and alluded to in 1 Corinthians 3.10-15 and Romans 14.10-12. And so, we are accountable to him, whether we know it, whether we agree with that, whether we believe it or not, we are accountable to God and we will give an account to him. But let's compare Hebrews 4.12 on the word of God with Hebrews 9.14. In 9.13 he says that the blood of bulls and goats, etc. did serve to ritually purify the worshipers under the system of Aaron, Aaron's priesthood. But then it says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ? What I really want you to see here is the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 and the blood of Christ in 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who, by the age-abiding spirit, offered himself unblemished to God. That word unblemished, amamas, refers to the description of a lamb, a lamb that's without blemish within or without. And so he's the lamb of God. 
He offered himself unblemished to God. What did he do in the offering of himself unblemished to God? Well, he took away the sin of the world for one thing in John 1.29. He, Christ, appeared once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He put away sin altogether. He also conquered death in his resurrection. So how much more will the blood of Christ, who by the age-abiding spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that's on the cross, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God, meaning serving as priests. All believers are priests in this sense, not just one high priest or a group of priests from the tribe of Levi. Levi, all believers are priests. Jesus Christ is our great high priest or archpriest, he has passed through the heavens, passed through the veil in the heavenly holy of holies, and is there now as our forerunner. That's what the story is in Hebrews. Now let's look at the verse a little bit. My calling is as a pastor teacher, as a pastor teacher, I have to look at every word in the scripture if I'm going to be worth my salt. So hidden here in going back to Hebrews 4.13, where it says there is no created being that is hidden. Hidden here is, in the Greek, it's aphanes. And it looks like this in the Greek text. I'm not going to do every word, but you will have a lot of these in print when the notes come out. Aphanes. And it comes from the Greek word, if I remember right, phanerao which means to manifest, to openly manifest. It's related to the word apocalypse or apocalypto, which means to unveil or to uncover or to dramatically reveal. A lot of people think of apocalypse in a negative sense. The real sense of apocalypse is the revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, which is, happens all throughout the Bible, especially here and in Revelation. So hidden is aphanes. And it means not manifested as to its authentic being and essence. No creature hides its authentic being and essence from God. Here there's an interconnectedness of all creation, not just human beings with their thoughts and intents, but animals and insects, reptiles, and even fish and fowl all have in common the nerve fibers and the myelin that are action potentials in creatures. In other words, God sees all of his creation at a glance. He sees every being's authentic essence and being. We can't hide from him. We shouldn't hide from him, because why hide from love? That's what the point of today's message will be. That no creature is not openly manifested to the scrutinizing word of God means emphatically that every created being is manifested to it. Now, I'll call the word of God it for now, just for now. Again, as Hebrews 4.13 says, there is no created being that's hidden from his sight. And then as if to back that up, In the converse, he says, everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable. That's a way of saying to whom we will 
give an account. Log on. The next declaration, therefore, makes it very explicit. Everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the scrutinizing and assessing word is referred to as the nominative masculine articular singular form halagos, but it's referred to by the genitive masculine singular pronoun. You don't have to get all this, but I'm just trying to show you the meaning of this verse. The pronoun autu is used twice in Hebrews 4.13. In other words, the word of God that's just a noun in 4.12 is a pronoun in 4.13, which means it has a personification. It's a personal word of God. And this is where we get into a cloud a little bit. One thing about God is even though all creation is clearly manifest to him, he is not clearly manifest to all of creation yet. If we're going to see what God is like, we see Jesus. If we're going to see what God is like in his fullness, we see Jesus crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so the word of God, as living, operational, and assessing of all creation and every created being, is associated with God himself in a way that reveals that the word of God, as it's called, shares the divine identity. Now because of this, I look at another passage. I want to look at another passage in Psalm 138, 1 and 2. This is the only way that Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2, makes sense. If the word of God has a divine identity... Now, some say, well, then the word of God equals the word made flesh, the word of God. It does in a way, but in another way, it does not, as we're going to see. So only because of this, that the word of God shares in the divine identity, does this verse make sense, or this two verses make sense. Now, I'm going to quote this from the Septuagint, or the Greek text, which is really in Psalm 137, 1 and 2, but in your English Bibles, it is 138, 1 and 2. Don't be confused. It's a psalm pertaining to David, says verse 1. And verse 1 goes on to say, I will acknowledge you, Lord, in my whole heart. There's another reference to the heart, but it is a reference to the whole heart, the entire heart. The entire heart, totally consecrated, totally committed, and entrusted to God. Because you heard the words of of my mouth. In this case, the words of his mouth are words that he uttered in prayer. God hears them. I can give you testimonies this week of God hearing prayers, answering prayers with healing and with restoration and with specific answers to specific requests. And so, you heard the words of my mouth, and in the sight of the angels, I will sing praise to you. That's the Greek text of the verse 1. But here's verse 2. I will worship toward your holy temple and acknowledge your name for your mercy and your truth. Your mercy, I like that one because in Hebrews 
we speak of, it speaks of mercy right down the road here in verse 16. In Romans, in the real key and height, highest verse in Romans, Romans 11.32, it says, God will show mercy to all of humanity in all of its times. That's Hebrews, that's Romans 11.32. I used to think Romans 8.38 and 39 were the height of Romans, but the height of Romans is Romans 11.32. No wonder he's going to praise God in the presence of his angels for his mercy. And for his truth means his authenticity and his faithfulness. And then he says this, and this is really what I want to home in on. Because you magnified your word. Now here the word is slightly different from logon. It's logion. And we shouldn't trip over that though. It's a little different from logon. You magnified your word. Now that generally means saying or word, and it's pretty much interchangeable with logon. You magnified your word. Some translations say above your name, but that's not what it says in the Greek text. It says you magnified your word above every name, and that's where we get to Hebrews 1.4. Jesus Christ was given a name above all the angels. And in Philippians 2.9-11, through 11, he's given a name above every name, the name Jesus, that the name Jesus every knee will genuflect and every tongue, according to Isaiah 45.23, will actually pledge allegiance to him. So it's not that he forces everybody to kneel and coerces everyone to confess. That's not God's way. Every knee bows, every tongue acknowledges praisefully, worshipfully, gladly, and freely that Jesus is Yahweh the Lord. Ton logion, or ton to logion, with the article here, to logion, in Psalm 138.2, is used exclusively in the plural in the New Testament. It's for oracles or direct messages, they're called DMs today, originating from God and received by direct revelation. The plural is used for laws, logion laws in Acts 7.38. It's used for messianic promises in Romans 3.2. It's used for inspired utterances in 1 Peter 4.11. It's used for promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 1.19-20. And, or at least in connection with that. So the word of God as used in Hebrews 4.12 has been interpreted to be Christological, meaning well, that's Jesus. He's the Word. He's the living Word. He's the Word made flesh. Others have rejected that, and some of the commentators I read, whom I respect very highly, rejected the Christological interpretation. Now, there's a middle term, and this is what, where the blade works in me in my study, which I call the cave. It's a painful thing to study the Word of God because to rightly divide it, God rightly divides you. And he rightly, he differentiates your consciousness through the blade of the Word. The writer does not specifically say that the Word of God is Jesus here, but he equates the Word of God to 
God. And so certainly we could say the word of God is Jesus, but we can also say the word of God is God in a general sense here, or equivalent to God in a general sense. Now this is difficult doctrine. In fact, I'm not going to make it altogether clear today. Like God, who wraps himself up in dark clouds, this doctrine will be at first wrapped up in obscurity. But then it will be made clear as we get down the road. So there's a middle term or a third way to take this interpretation. The pastor who teaches, the the PT here, seems to want to distinguish the word of God from the incarnate word. And he also at the same time, he wants to make the word of God equal to God. Jesus did the same thing in John 12, 45 to 50 as we saw in a recent message. He said, the word that I speak to you will judge you in the last day. He's not speaking of himself. He's speaking of the word that he speaks that will judge us on the last day or assess us or evaluate us on the last day. We also discovered in that passage in 1245 to 50 that the word has to do with life. When he judges, he speaks a word that gives life. Now, that's quite a judgment, going from death to life. So, on the other hand, as Jesus distinguished himself from the word that he spoke in John 12, 45 to 50, on the other hand, the word of God is revealed here to have attributes, abilities, and activities that can only be divine. The word of God is truly personified by the pastor who teaches here, and yet he does not identify the word of God specifically as the incarnate word. The reason is he's getting into a deeper theological territory than you'd anticipate here. This kind of theology goes all the way out to Athanasius and his creed. Now again, these are things that I'm just stretching us in, These are like one more rep. No, we don't want to do one more rep. You're going to do one more rep. Yes, it hurts. It's just stretching our capacity for future doctrines. So don't expect to get it all. And you might not even finish this rep. But the reason for this is that there is what is known as a Trinitarian theological principle in the creed of Athanasius. Athanasius was a phenomenal scholar and theologian among the church fathers, Athanasius. He had a creed called three and also one. In the Latin, it was tres et unus. Tres et unus. And that means three, but also one. Not three in one or three and one, but three and also one. Now, this is where God enters into some realms of mystery. And I like that because whenever we think we've got God figured out, we don't. In that creed, the creator is one uncreated being. He's called increatus or uncreated. He's called immensus or omnipresent. And he's called omnipotent God and Lord. One uncreated being omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, or all-knowing. 
And yet each of the three persons of the triune being called God is also by and in himself uncreated, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Because each of the three subjects or persons of the divine trinity is that one God. Though each is not the other. Now, you say, that's really kind of mystical. Well, let me tell you something. If you were caught up into heaven right now, you wouldn't understand anything about heaven. Things would be so far beyond your imagination, like God and Jesus and the redeemed souls of people and justified spirits of people made perfect and the uncountable angels. You'd have a long time, a hard time figuring it out. So I'm hitting you with a little bit of the mystery of the Trinity here. Each of the three persons is that one God, though each is not the other. Jesus Christ, as the Son, is everything that the Father is, but he's not the Father. The Father is everything that the Son is, but he's not the Son. If you see me, you've seen my Father, Jesus said, but he speaks of the Father as a separate person than himself. So each of the persons, we call them, in the triune God is the one personal God. That's why he calls it tres et unus. One, three, and also one. And this has been dealt with very clearly with John Henry Newman in his book called The Grammar of Ascent, but we've dealt with that before. There is a deliberate obscurity here. A deliberate obscurity. Sometimes the word is obscure, and it's supposed to be. It's as if to remind the readers that God himself is hidden to his creatures, though his creatures are not hidden from God. And every creature and all creation is openly and thoroughly manifested to him. One way of showing that God is hidden from our sight is that a cloud and thick darkness are around him. He wraps it around him like a cloak, in a way. In Psalm 97, Septuagint 96, 1 and 2, it says this, The Lord is king. Maybe you'll remember what we dubbed this year, the year of the great king. The Lord is king. Let the earth be overjoyed. Let many islands be glad. A cloud and thick darkness are around him. A cloud and thick darkness are around him. Righteousness, which is his saving act, and justifying judgment are the successes of his throne. We could say, what are the, the successes of an administration, a presidential administration? And somebody would list those successes. Well, the successes of God's divine eternal administration is his saving act and his justifying judgment, both of which are cosmic and universal. So by contrast, everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of God. Though he wraps himself in a cloud, we are exposed to his eyes. 
Naked is an interesting word here in the Greek. It's gumna or gymna if you drop down the U. G-U-M-N-A. Yes, we get the word gymnasium from that, our English word gymnasium, because in the Greco-Roman epic, it was, it was customary for men or athletes to work out naked. They didn't wear anything. Previous to the disobedience of Adam and previous to sin's entry into the cosmos, the first Adam, named Ish for man, and the first woman named Isha for woman from the man, before the fall, before sin, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, says Genesis 2.25. Unashamed. Only after the disobedience of Adam and the fall were the man and his wife naked and ashamed, or yet, better yet, like the TV show, they were naked and afraid. For Adam, who along with Esau tried to hide himself, notice that, tried to hide himself from God. Now that's interesting. That's a difficult endeavor given that there's no creature that's not hidden from God or that's, that remains hidden from God. They tried to hide themselves from God and to God, Adam said, I heard you coming in the garden. I heard you approaching and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. Genesis 3.10 now, on the cross, Jesus, the last Adam, associated himself with the shame of the nakedness of the first Adam. Hebrews 12.2 said, Jesus, while enduring the cross by which he put away sin, was naked and unashamed by saying he was despising the shame. He was despising the shame. There was a great shame associated with crucifixion. Not only was the crucified victim naked, he was hung beaten. He was publicly shamed. He was crucified as a criminal, as the worst of all kinds of people. And yet it says he despised the shame. And that doesn't mean that he was all afraid of the shame. It meant that he didn't think of the shame. He thought of obedience to his father and his father's saving will. The first Adam, before sin, was naked and ashamed and became ashamed along with Esha after his act of disobedience, which resulted in sin passing to all of humankind. Jesus, who is the last Adam, without sin, became sin and to put away sin so that his life and righteousness would pass to all of humankind. As sin passed to all of humankind through Adam, righteousness and life passed to all of humankind through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, naked and despising the shame. He thought nothing of the shame of what people thought of him, of how they mocked him and cruelly cursed at him and threw dung at him and heaped insults upon him. He thought nothing of the shame because his whole heart was involved in obedience to his father's universally saving will. For God intends that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's God our Savior. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. And Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. 
and he laid his life down as a ransom for all, not some but all. 1 Timothy 2.5 and 2.6. And so there is a nakedness that's merely the absence of clothes on the human body. There's a nakedness that speaks of shame. In Revelation 16.15, Jesus said, Look, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and guards his clothes so that he does not have to walk around naked and they see his shame. That means shame is associated with those that are not ready for the Lord when he appears the second time. 1 John 2.28, Hebrews 9.28. Again, nakedness is associated with shame in Genesis 9.22-23 where Noah's nakedness is referred to three times in the Greek text. Gumnos, or G-U-M-N-O-S-I-N. Gumnosin, or Gimnosin. The nakedness of Noah. He was drunk, he was naked in the tent, and in Genesis 9, 22-23, we won't speak of the events that led up to that, but it says, verse 22, Ham the father of Canaan. I did a little joke with this yesterday while I was studying. Ham, we can relate to ham radio broadcasting. Ham radio. And then Canaan, we can relate to C-A-N-A-A-N. Well, we don't want to do that, C-N-N. But in any case, they broadcast his nakedness. And so it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, Gumnosin. And told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, verse 23, took a cloak and placed it uh, over both of their shoulders. Walking backwards, says, they covered their father's nakedness. Again, Gumnosin. Their faces were turned away. So they did not see their father's nakedness. Again, Gumnosin, the third time. The real shame in that case was not Noah's nakedness, but the shame of Ham, the father of Canaan, who saw it and reported it, uncovering people's shame is a worse thing than the shame itself. Maligning, gossiping, slandering, busybodies, It's difficult to watch the news now because it used to be Walter Cronkite telling you the facts. Now it's people viciously slandering and lying about other people constantly. It's not news. It's the accuser of the brethren. In many cases, not in all, of course. And so the real shame in Genesis 9.22-23 wasn't Noah's nakedness, but the shame of Ham who saw it and reported it. And there's one more case of nakedness that I want to deal with. In, it's a kind of a mystery, but not. It's in Mark 14. It's about a certain young man who was following Jesus on the night he was taken by the temple police in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's found in Mark 14, 51 and 52, and I translated it from the Greek text. It says, Now a certain young man having a linen cloth around his body, was following Jesus. 
and the temple police caught hold of him. They grabbed him, but in verse 52 it says, he left the linen tunic and escaped from them naked, G-U-M-N-O-S. He escaped from them naked. Now, who was this young man? Many think it was the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. His name was John Mark. He was a nephew of Paul or Saul of Tarsus. He was a friend of Peter, and he actually took Peter's notes on Jesus to write the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, to show you that I'm not just spinning this out of thin air, the CSB note, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible note on Mark 15 or 14:51, suggests that this was perhaps John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. That's what they say. The net study note, or the New English Translation study note on Mark 14:52, agrees. They say the statement "He ran off naked" is probably a reference to Mark himself traditionally assumed to be the author of this gospel. And then they add this. Why he was wearing only an outer garment and not the customary tunic as well is not mentioned. And then they quote William L. Lane on Mark, who says that Mark probably mentioned this episode so as to make it clear that all fled, leaving Jesus alone in the custody of the police. That is according to a prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And they did, all of them. So what is Mark doing? He's saying, I just might be that young man who ran away naked. He was the streaker in that big event called Gethsemane. He ran, I'm the guy who ran away. I want to explain to you that the author of Mark is not a perfect man. The author of Mark is a man who fled and ran for his life when Jesus was taken, just like all the rest of the disciples. So I want to tell you that the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark is a man that was restored by the love of Christ to do so, just like Peter was, who also denied him three times. And so, Mark who wrote it, fled and was restored. Peter, who told Mark about events that led to the Gospel of Mark, also fled and denied and was restored. I'm preaching today because I'm a man who's been restored by God's love, not because I'm anything in myself. In fact, I added up all that I am in myself, and I came up with zero. Nothing. And Paul agrees, we are nothing. God is everything. God gives the increase. We might plant. We might water. God gives the increase. We didn't give the increase. We are nothing. It's great to be nothing because then you have a perfect relationship with God who is everything. Now in closing, one of the best things we can do, if there's going to be a word of God revival in our nation to save our nation, if there's going to be a reawakening to the scriptures that's going to pull up our nation and the nations of the world right now from a nosedive, a historical nosedive that we're in right now, then we're going to have to begin by letting God search our hearts 
and assess our thoughts and determinations and even acknowledge those things that he points out in us through his blood, but nevertheless things he points out in us that need to be corrected or acknowledged even as sin. And so that's how it's going to begin. One of the best things we can do is to stop trying to hide and let the Lord see us, because he does anyways. In Psalm 139, 23, which is the Septuagint 138, 23, the psalmist wisely prayed this, Examine me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know the paths I take. Paths here is the plural of tribos, and it means well-worn tracks or beaten paths, the habits of my thinking. You've got to check out the habits of my thinking because the habits of my thinking just might have led to an addiction or a habit or a self-destructive destructive problem. Get in there, Father, with your word and show me those paths and break them up if they're the things that are leading to my destruction or keeping me from loving other people. That's what he's saying. Examine me and know my heart. Test me and know the paths I take. And that even includes the well-worn pathways of our thinking and intentions, the habitual ways of deliberating and intending. Why did the psalmist beg God to do that? Because he knew God was a God of love. He knew that the word that was going to assess him sees the blood. Therefore, he was courageous to let God see his innermost being and confess his innermost thoughts. He was very brave and courageous about it. He had freedom of speech toward God. We speak today of freedom of speech, and well, we should. It's the most treasured right in our nation's history, in our, in our freedom as a nation. But the greatest freedom of speech is the freedom of speech we had toward God, that we have toward God in acknowledging ourselves before God and letting him search us. So it's profitable for us to do this because God knows us anyways, and he loves us. And we're going to illustrate this in the next message, in the next increment, Lord willing. Let's not try to hide from him And let's not try to hide our sins even from him, but rather acknowledge them freely to him and experience his love as forgiveness and cleansing. That's the point here. The word for exposed, and we'll end on this, is the perfect passive participle of the Greek verb trachalizo or trachalizo, T-R. A, and you'll see it looks a little bit, in other words, like an English word, T-R-A-C-H-E-L-I-Z-O. And this looks a little bit like trachea, T-R-A-C-H-E-L-I-Z-O. looks a little bit like our trachea. Why? Because what's being implied here is the bending back of the neck of a sacrificial lamb before the blade cuts the throat. And so it's, it's an implication here. The perfect passive participle of trechalizo, meaning to bend the neck. The verbal adjective is etymologically related to trechalos, which means neck or throat. It's related to the English trachea, which is essentially the windpipe. 
It seems also to refer to the action of the high priest, therefore, to bend the neck of a sacrificial animal in order to expose the trachea to, in order to slit the throat, sacrifice the animal. This would indicate another oblique reference to the system of animal sacrifices which had been ended and abrogated or terminated by the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, who was both the priest and the offerer, the high priest and the Lamb of God, and who gained our eternal redemption and obtained it through his own blood, Hebrews 9.12, Hebrews 13.12, etc. Now, where we're going to go in this is that Hebrews 4.14 is going to tell us that Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens. As the word passes through the soul and spirit to distinguish the soul from the spirit, Jesus passed through the heavens to distinguish a priesthood that's heavenly from a priesthood that's earthly, where the Levitical priests passed through an earthly tabernacle to the Holy of Holies, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies in heaven, passing through the veil, which is his flesh, and he's a forerunner for us now there. The spirit of of people is like the Holy of Holies in heaven. The soul of us is sort of like the earthly tabernacle. The word of God distinguishes from in between the two so that we can get our eyes on Jesus, in the, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and the forerunner for us in heaven beyond the veil. So that's all coming up, and that all connects. Everything connects in Hebrews. But especially I wanted you to know that there is a blood groove along the length of the blade of the word. So, Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to look into in depth into your word and into these two verses especially, which pay homage to your word. And we thank you, Father, that we can be buds, believers under doctrine, and those who are constantly allowing our souls and spirits and inner thoughts and intents to be exposed to you and to the eyes of your love so that we can be renewed in the spirit of our mind and be part of a reawakening of the word of God, a word of God revival that pulls up history from its downward decline. In Jesus' name, we thank you for this. Amen.